Hey buddy, I hoid the droughts moving in, muscling in on your turf. To make matters worse, the man keeps telling you to limit your spigot. That drought is bad news, no fooling. But me and my boys can help. The water boys, on the water zone, Thursday nights at six. We'll help you protect your turf and save water. And hey, don't worry about it. Consider it a gift. Yeah, Louie, you heard the boss. We gotta listen in at 6 p.m. on Thursday nights. Okay, Vinny, you got it. The water zone, Thursday nights at 6 p.m. I'll tell our lawn it's now protected. From the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 10.50 a.m., 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful, sunny California, thanks for tuning in to The Water Zone Show. I'm Rap Star, along with Mr. Mike Barron, also known around here as Mikeypedia, and together we collectively are known as Da Water Boys. Hey, Mike, how are you doing this afternoon? Oh, I am doing fantastic. <laughs> you know, it's been two weeks since I had the privilege of sitting next to you and being part of the water zone so i'm excited to be here excellent 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 we got a great guest today and uh actually we have two but one's, we one's always our, have great one, guests. one's our standing guest which is uh, the the purveyor of maven's notebook miss chris austin and then we have another gentleman uh that we're going to have on mr jay lund uh and he's from uc davis is uh, does mr david is he on the phone who do we got Oh, that's just Chris? No, we got Dave, too. We got who? Jay. Oh, excellent, excellent, excellent. Great, 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 great. You're great. better than you even realize. Well, I'm scrambling because the numbers that they gave us to use didn't work. <laughs> I had to oh, scramble, that... scramble to send Jay a, a, a message, and I gave Chris a different number to call in this morning just to be safe. Well, I mentioned who was going to be on the show tonight, uh, Chris and uh, Professor Lund, and both my wife and my daughter, who is in Baltimore, are going to be listening in on the 800 number versus on the um, on the phone. So they were excited, too. Excellent, excellent. Well, we're all excited today. Anyway, it's a great week, great day. Things are happening, and I'll tell you more what's going on after the show. <laughs> all right. Lots of crazy things. But anyway, we should uh, get into the show and, and bring uh, Miss uh, Miss Chris on. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? We're excellent. You know, Chris was with me, uh, or I was with her either way, where we both attended the San Bernardino Water Conference last Friday. I heard that was uh, very informative and um, that you didn't get kicked out. <laughs> so, you know, we're all happy about that. <laughs> I didn't, he didn't get booed off the stage. I know, you know, he he's, he's a bit of a Robertopedia, too, himself. You know, he's been... <laughs> Been doing a great job. I, be, I behaved myself. All right. <laughs> no, I, I, how, what did you think of the uh, conference? Oh, I thought it was great. I thought it was very informative. Um, and, and you had an interesting panel talking about the difference between public and private water agencies. Right. Um, you know, it would have been fun to get into some of the real differences in the business world. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I know that I know they didn't want they didn't want public agencies. Yeah, they didn't know? they didn't want to touch on that. And then when I took the questions from the audience. Um, I was shocked at the first person who got up and asked some questions, <laughs> but I had to let them go on because uh, she wasn't very happy with uh, one of the water agencies. But you can't stop them. I mean, you ask them to ask their questions and got to let oh, them. Oh, I know, and and you don't want to put panelists on the spot, never, no. you know. But the, but I think the the big difference between public agencies and and investor-owned utilities is that the public agencies have to take public trust values into consideration they're spending the public's money so there's a, a lot more control absolutely it, you know an investor-owned utility does have you know uh, some more flexibility that you know they're regulated by the puc but you know they don't they don't have to do some of the things that the public utilities have to do but you know it's it's 
getting the public to understand the difference between the two agencies because, you know, two different types of agencies. That's going to be about as easy as helping the public understand why it is in our long-term interest to allow prices of water to rise. That's going to be a tough one to convince people. Well, the value of the real value of water. But, But to start this off, let's do it right. Are you ready to, you know what they do at the boxing matches, right? Are you ready to you know, box? No. <laughs> what, what, what does that guy say? Oh, rumble. Are you ready to rumble? And we're having some rumblings up north. Farmers and environmentalists joined to battle uh, planned Delta Tunnels project. You want to tell us a little more what you know, Chris? Yeah, well, you know, there was, there's not really a story about anything particularly new, not a new lawsuit being filed yet, uh, but, you know, give it a day or two. Um, but it's more. It was more of a story that you know, uh, the opposition to the Delta tunnels are starting to uh, coalesce together, and sometimes that makes for some strange bedfellows. But uh, you know, it's uh, they're they're kind of joining forces. Those that are opposed, as are those that are for the tunnels. You know, they had a meeting on Monday at Metropolitan Water District on the cost and and finance of the the California Water Fix project. And I would have to say, I'm still working through the meeting, Um, I would have to say that uh, there were about as many people speaking in support of the project, mostly uh, business leaders, the uh, labor groups, um, but there were as many people speaking uh, um, in favor of the project as there were speaking against the project, which I thought was kind of interesting. So uh, everyone was out in force for those uh, for that beginning part of the meeting where usually there's no one there to speak, but now there's like 25 people. Uh, <laughs> but it's interesting. People are kind of getting out to, to uh, express their opinions. Um, you know, the, the news from the Metropolitan Water District is now they actually think it's going to be less, more like $3 a month per household uh, for the California Water Fix project. Uh, but the tunnel opponents don't agree with their cost assumptions. Um, and again, really the wild card, I, to me, I don't really think the wild card is whether urban Southern California is going to go for it. It's really um, what is agriculture in the Central Valley? What are they going to do? Mm. Um, and that we just kind of have to wait uh, to see how, how that shakes out. You know, there's a lot of rumblings that they can't afford it, but when push comes to shove and they have to come down to the wire and make the decision, that's when we'll really know. Well, it would be interesting to observe how the water agencies that are going to pay for the project um, get, I guess, stalled by the anti water fix uh, advocates in court and whether that will be a you know 10-year resolution time frame or whether that's going to be a you know 20-year resolution but I just know I think I heard and our next guest uh, I think is going to be able to clarify uh, exactly how long has this water fix been in development and how many different constituencies have had a chance to participate in in drafting or creating you know what's being proposed now so it'll be interesting Definitely yeah interesting. it's been a long oh, decade a little decade plus you know also jay lund uh came out his uh group came out with a it's actually not jay lund himself but his blog the california water blog came out with a really good post i think on monday on the california water fix project where I, it's uh, uh, the writer was uh, Dr. Peter Moyle, who is a highly respected fisheries biologist, and um, and they went through and and kind of sussed out the the whole California water fix. Um, you know whether what you know would would it work and and is it, you know what happens if it doesn't go through and what are the other options. Um, and I thought it was a really good, clear way to lay everything out. So you should ask him about that. I'm sure he'd be happy to talk to you more Excellent. about where they are with that. Well, 
Yeah, that'll be great. Absolutely. So I hear there was a uh, a symposium presentation that looked at uh, Governor Brown's administration proposed framework for water conservation. Oh, yes. That was at the Chino Basin event at the end of June. I I posted that. Uh, The legislature comes back next week, and one of the things that they were supposed to be working on over the break was how to... Um, how to enact this framework that the governor, uh, you know, put out, his agencies put out on how to make California, uh, how to make conservation a California way of life. And mainly what, what the point of dispute, I guess, is, is that the state is, wants to set water use targets for the water agency. Um, to, to reduce their water use. And they're looking for, instead of like an across-the-board cut, they're sort of proposing, um, you know, kind of come on a, up with the water budget, you know, how many gallons people should be using indoors and how many gallons is outdoors. And then they want to set efficiency levels, and then the water districts would have to, um, you know, enact policies to get to that point. Um, and the water agencies are really trying to, you know, come up with what they feel is a fair. There's, you know, it sounds easy at on the outset, but when you really start digging into it, um, you know, there are questions. And so uh, we're going to probably see some movement on that um, in the next month or so now that the legislature is back. So we'll be looking to see what happens there. Well, it'll be, it'll be interesting. The thing is, you know, every time somebody makes a plan and they have the public hearings, and after everybody makes a decision, there's more people who just find out what it's all about, and it starts all over again. Well, you know, it's. I think what's really, I, I think that a lot of people don't understand quite this thing of demand management. I actually asked my husband one night, I said, if I tell you that your utility company practices demand management, what do you think that means? And he took a a minute and he says, I think they're spying on me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's like Southern Cal, they've done this with the electricity because they don't want to be building any more power plants, right? So they've put uh, constraints on the electrical utilities to reduce consumption in your service area and so you have to implement plans and policies to get people to reduce their their use and uh you know and that's something that they've done with the electrical utilities now they're going to do it with the um with the water utilities so it's um it's an interesting way of going about it and and it really puts it in the the court of the water districts to make this happen but you know when you look to the other side um, the public doesn't understand it, you know, uh, and and I don't know how you make customers use less if they don't care that they use as much as they use. You know, there's definitely the feeling, well, I can use what I want and willing to pay for it. Yep. I wish and, we had. I, w- I wish we had more time because Chris, uh, we'll save this for next uh, week, uh, and that has to do with Prop One funding for watershed rehabilitation that's something that i think that it was at least new to me um so that's a that's a pretty big deal i think yeah well they also had all the uh, surface storage projects had to turn in their applications so that was the big news this week too um you know how many new new dams or you know there's only 2.7 billion out there for a new storage project and it's not intended to fully pay for um you know any any one project and uh, there's like 12 12 projects applied six six or four dams and the other six were groundwater projects hmm. um and i it's and not enough money obviously for all 12 so they'll be being evaluated on a competitive basis for those We'll see how that goes. Absolutely. All right, well, we're going to take a little break here and get some uh, words from our sponsor and then be back with our other guest, Mr. Jay Lund. So uh, stick around, everybody. If you want to call in, 909-792-5222 or 909-792-1050. And thank you very much, Chris. Yeah. Okay, we'll, we'll talk to you next week. All Thanks. right. <laughs> take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Well, welcome back to the uh, Water Zone Show with Mike and Rob. We hope everybody's having a great afternoon. And Mike and I are excited, and so is other people that we've talked to about our, our next guest, as well as Chris. Uh, we have a gentleman named Jay Lund. He's the director for the Center of Watershed Sciences at uh, UC Davis. A little background on him. Jay is a professional of civil and environmental engineering. He's on the editorial board of several water resources publications, has been a member of the advisory committee for the 1998 and 2005 California Water Plan Updates, has served as convener of the California Water and Environment Modeling Forum, and president of the University's Council on Water Resources, as well as the Delta Independent Science Board. Jay's principal research interest is in the application of systems analysis, economic and management methods to infrastructure and public works problems. Uh, he's also the co-author of several books and reports to the Sacramento San, Juan, San Joaquin Delta, published by the Public Policy Institute of California and the University of California Press. He also co-authored an analysis of economical water supply alternatives to Hetch Hetchy Dam, and also writes a blog. So. Jay, your blog your blog starts with the statement: "A biologist, economist, engineer, and geologist walk into a bar." Which are you, and how did you become so knowledgeable and passionate about California water? Um, well, we we have a, here at the Center for Watershed Sciences at UC Davis. We started off as a group of, of professors from different departments. There was a biologist, Peter Moyle, uh, Chris Austin mentioned earlier, an economist, who uh, Richard Howitt. Uh, engineer, that's me, a geologist, Jeff Mount, um, and we uh, started working on these water problems, and we have such a great time that we, we kept working on it, and the center's grown since over time to uh, where I'm the last of all those that hasn't actually retired. So, <laughs> uh, But we have a lot of new people, and we do a lot of fun things, um, and so I, it seems like when the opening statement for the blog, uh, which is californiawaterblog.com, uh, that we should have something uh, a little bit like a beginning of a joke uh, because we wanted to have a little bit of sense of humor. So we have that... biologist, economist, engineer, and geologist walk onto a bar. <laughs> <laughs> oh. That's, that's even more interesting. Yeah. I, I, well, I was reading that as I would walk into a bar. I don't know where my mind is at. So that's, thank you for that clarification. Anyway, we have either one of those are very good. <laughs> <laughs> we have we also have on our line uh, just so everybody knows Miss Ingi Bisconer, and she works for our micro irrigation group and does a lot with ag and stuff. And we thought we'd bring her on because a lot of your work is involved in ag and you touch all of those things. So we thought we'd not gang up on you, but get get people in different uh, areas of specialties to to ask you some questions. So Ingi, I'll let you uh, ask the next one. Yes, uh, I think I think Rob and Mike, you just thought you'd be hungry, so you wanted the uh, the ag gal in the morning. And we will talk about we will talk about food, but uh, Jay, I first wanted to dive into your latest blog speak of a new environmentalism that's needed, and and I like the phrase going from no to how better. And uh, so my question is, can you kind of explain the nature and significance of what really time shift and maybe some examples of what we could accomplish by going from no to how better. Uh, well, you know, if you go back to, to the origins of most of the environmental legislation, it was the late 60s, early 70s, things were pretty bad. The terrible air pollution down in Southern California, many other parts of the state, a lot of water pollution problems, a lot of concern with hazardous waste, all kinds of things. And so I think the emphasis on the original legislation was, well, let, let's stop doing bad things. And and so a lot of the legislation is sort of prohibitory. Okay, how can we say no to bad things? And and I think that that was a very important start at, at the time. Well, we've gotten pretty good at saying no to things. Um, and it's made a lot of environmental improvements. Certainly air quality in Southern California is a lot better. Um a lot of our water quality problems are better, um, but it hasn't worked really well for ecosystems, for the native species that we want to keep around, particularly in, in the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta and other parts of the state. We're, we're still going to have, no matter what happens, a lot of human activity, a lot of economic activity, agriculture, people living, people recreating. Um, and we're not going to be able to say no to all those activities, and we're going to have to get used to having people in that landscape with all the native species and the uh, public health that we're going to have anyway. We want to have 
so the, the question, I think, is, has got to shift to how are we going to do better than what we're doing now? Certainly, we're, we're still adding a lot of endangered species, even though we've been saying no to a lot of changes over time, because a lot of changes happen anyway, no matter what we do with the regulation. So um, our, we're, we're looking to how do you better manage for the environment and still keep humans around, because you're not going to get rid of them, um, but be more effective, yeah. more pragmatic in uh, keeping ecosystems alive as well. So no is kind of, um, if I understand you right, no was kind of the low-hanging fruit to just stop the things that were just obviously so bad, but to help the ecosystem, it's more complicated, and it requires maybe collaboration and, and maybe not just saying no, but maybe saying yes. Oh, yeah. We, activities we, that help, the, help right. the ecosystem as well. Basically, we have to figure out how to say yes to things and what yeah, we want to say yeah. yes to. Uh, it's, it's very easy to say no. You, know, you, you can go and, and you know, pretty much to any, any kind of uh, public meeting or something. It's always easy to say no. But yeah. uh, in order to make progress, you have to find ways to say yes. And, and I think that's true for environmental progress as well as human progress. Yeah, interesting. I really enjoyed that blog, so thank you for writing it. Uh, these are all fun to write. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. Well, you know, if you take... Um this this approach of saying how how can we do this better, um, and we put it in context to California's water situation. You know we have the ag and urban and environmental sectors. Uh, they get their water from obviously rain and snow to begin with, and we store that water uh, in reservoirs. We also store it uh, in the ground. Um, but I often hear conflicting facts or numbers with respect to how much of California's water each of those sectors really uses on an average in an average year. Can you shed some light or um, share with us what you think is the legitimate way to look at California's water resources? Well, I think the first thing to, to realize is California is a very big place and it's very diverse. So there are some parts of the state uh, that are uh, almost entirely agricultural use, a few parts of the state that are almost entirely urban water use, a few parts of the state that have really very little agriculture and human use and are mostly flows that, that are unregulated. Um, and some people will call those environmental. Um, we also have very wet years and very dry years. So in some years, um, the proportions will change a lot <laughs> between wet years and dry years, depending upon where you are in the state. If, if you look at the managed water in the system, so, so if you sort of carve out the, the north coast, which is largely unmanaged, um, then we have uh, really most of the water being managed is for agriculture and then urban and then a bit for, for the environment. And, and when you but say if, for the... If you include all the water statewide, including the the North Coast, which is pretty wet, but doesn't have a lot of agriculture or human use, uh, then it's about 50% uh, unregulated flows, environmental flows, um, about 40% um, agriculture, and about 10% uh, urban. Interesting. And, and those, uh, those numbers are fairly well accepted within the water discussion community, say the folks that are debating the water fix? Um, well, they all, you know, every every sector likes to do the numbers in ways that make them look uh, more <laughs> impoverished. Yes. Um, Good point. Well, that's that's why the that, that was the uh, origin of this question because we wanted to get it from an unbiased um, uh, well, one, source. One thing I learned during the drought was that waste is always water used by somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, well, you know, since Chris, since Chris was just on, she has an excellent um, write-up on those numbers that Jay just recited from DWR on the different ways of accounting for California's water. So if um, listeners are interested, they should go to Maven's notebook and they could see that. And maybe, Jay, you have something on your blog as well. Oh, yeah, we, we, have, we have a couple of blogs on that as well. But, but they all okay. tell a similar story. What, what percentage yeah. of, if I could just ask, sure. of the water that falls from the rain 
really we get to keep and the rest goes somewhere else that we never get to touch? <laughs> um, well, that's really interesting. So if you take a statewide average about 200 million acre-feet of water fall on the state in an average year. But the runoff uh, down the streams um, is only about 75 million acre-feet. So most of the water that comes down as precipitation evaporates and goes straight back up. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Nature recycling. Do you think, just to follow up a little bit on Rob's question, um, that there is potential to perhaps capture more of this, uh, of the 200 million acre feet that might help resolve some of our water shortages in those dry periods? Well, there there have been people talking about that since the 1950s or before, about what what could you do to the watersheds to to keep more of the water that, that falls out of the sky as rain or snow. Um, and it, it's usually pretty expensive. Mm-hmm. So imagine going up to the mountains um, and cutting down all those trees that evaporate water and, and pave it so that it all runs off. Okay, that's one way you could do it. But that, that's pretty expensive, and it causes uh, a lot of environmental damage, if you will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but even recently, uh, this drought has, has caused people to think a little bit more in the sense that... Um, we lost about 100 million trees in this drought up in the forest because it was very dry and very warm for several years, and it caused a lot of uh, bark beetle infestations and diseases. Um, and those trees are not going to come back very fast. It takes you know 30 years to have a 30-year-old tree. So what we're likely to see for some time is a reduction in the evapotranspiration off the forests for a few years. We might have, have a higher... Uh, evaporation from lower level plants that are going to grow more immediately, but um, it'll be interesting to see what happens to the, the forest ecosystem and the amount of water that evaporates off of them for for the next 10 years or so. It might We might get a little bit more water out of it. Interesting. Well, well, we, we recently did some back-of-the-envelope calculations to, to look at how much would it cost to get more water off of those mountain watersheds by uh, thinning some of the forests, say. Um, and it's really quite expensive. Um, more expensive than desalinating seawater in many cases. So wow. There sure. might be some, some cases where it's worthwhile, but it's not going to be, I think, uh, terribly widespread. Well, I know that um, given your expertise with California water issues, you know, I've got to ask you about the California water fix. I'm sure you've presented at meetings and You've written about it. Um, I think it's been discussed and in development for the last 10 years. Uh, And Governor Brown, at least part of his promotion of it or support of it, is a pro-environment position, you know, that it's an initiative that's going to help protect the environment, whereas some farmers in Northern California and, and, and environmentalists are really saying, hey, no, this is the water fix is going to, is bad for the environment, and we don't want it to happen. Um, so what you typically see is traditional allies in this particular case are on opposite sides of the discussion. I'm wondering if you could comment on that and what your perspective is. Well, the, the Delta is, is one of the major sources of water for the state. It's, it's the major hub for moving water from the northern part of the state, the wetter part of the state, to the drier part of the state. And that that includes Southern California. About a third of the water used in Southern California comes out of the Delta. And it includes the, the San Joaquin Valley, the Central Valley south of the Delta, and includes a lot of the Bay Area, actually, the cities in the Bay Area. take uh, get maybe 70% of their water directly or indirectly from the Delta. Hmm. So um, it, it's very important. Um, but at the same time, the lands of the Delta uh, are, are subsiding. Uh, they're, they're getting lower. Uh, the sea level is rising, and it's, it's probably going to be rising at a faster rate. So we're going to have more flooding of the delta, more tendency for salt water to intrude in the delta, and that's very bad for the water quality that the humans use and that the crops use. 
um, and it, it's going to change the ecosystem quite a bit as well. So we're going to see some big changes in the delta over the next 50 years, 100 years, certainly, as we have in the past. Uh, and we have to be prepared for it if, if the delta is going to remain a major source of water supply for much of the state. So is, so it, is it... The water fix idea is to essentially build uh, a couple of tunnels in the northern end of the delta up of the Sacramento River, lower part of the Sacramento River, and take some of the water that's currently diverted to the south underground and then pick it up south of the delta. And that'll improve the water quality and the reliability of that, that water delivery. It won't really expand the water total water taken out of the delta, the total amount of water exported from the delta very much, if at all. Um, but it should improve the water quality for the, for the human uses, both urban and agricultural. And then on the environmental side, currently what we do is we export all that water from pumping plants in the southern part of the delta. And so most, many of the, of the rivers in the southern part of the delta and in the central delta, they essentially flow backwards. As the pumps in the southern delta drag water from the Sacramento River across the delta down closer to the San Joaquin River. And, and that running those rivers backwards in the southern part of the, in the central part of the delta uh, is not very good for the native fish. They're used to rivers flowing out to sea, and instead they're flowing. So would the water, <laughs> would the, would the water fix eliminate that reverse flow problem? Um, the original idea was to have a much larger capacity, which would probably eliminate almost all of that reverse flow. Uh, I think the current proposal, uh, which is about half of the original proposal, um, will substantially reduce those reverse flows, but not entirely eliminate them. There'll be some times uh, when the rever reverse flows continue, or the current regulation also uh, limits the amount of reverse flow so that uh, it limits the amount of pumping. And, and Jay, one of the, uh, I might add about the earthquakes, one of the best arguments that I've heard in favor of the, um, of the tunnel construction is that it would help us overcome the inevitable earthquake that would taint water for millions and millions of people, millions of acres of, of farmland. Can you comment on that? Is that um, I, I think there uh, is something to that. Um, yeah. Certainly, uh, if you had a major, major earthquake and you lost quite a few of those islands, it takes a long time to get the salt back out of the delta, and you yeah. might go quite a few months, maybe even more than a year, uh, before you could start exporting or start moving that Sacramento River water across uh, across the delta, repairing the islands and, and having driven the salt back out. Uh, I, I'm a little bit of two minds about it. I think it would be a, prob a problem still, but I, there's since the recent earthquakes in, uh, in Napa County, they found that some of the earthquakes uh, attenuate a little faster than they expected uh, for the delta. So maybe the earthquakes are not quite as bad as, as had been expected earlier. Um, yeah. In, a, in addition, um, a lot certainly the cities south of the delta are go, go to a lot of expense to uh, prepare, keep water in reservoirs and keep water in groundwater for earthquakes that they have to prepare for locally as well. Yeah. So there, there's already, I think, for the urban users, um, in particular, quite a lot of water that is habitually stored south of the delta that would be available for such occasions. So I, the damages would be large, and we would worry about them a lot, but I'm not sure if they would be completely catastrophic. Hmm, okay. Um, well, switching gears a little bit, um, let's talk about agriculture, which consumes, no matter which way you slice that pie that we were just talking about, it consumes a lot of water to grow our food. But we have to remember that, you know, the farmers aren't growing it for themselves, they're growing it for for people, but in, in any case, I think it's pretty well publicized that, you know, agriculture, you know, the food that, that farmers produce, uh, food, fuel, and fiber that farmers produce only contributes 
you know, like 5% of state economy, GDP, and, and maybe even a smaller percent in jobs, maybe 2%. And yet our climate, you know, so some said, hey, the agriculture should go somewhere else, and um, then we wouldn't have so many water problems for people and the environment. But, you know, we have a very unique climate here in California that grows you know, fruit, nuts, and vegetables that can't really be grown in very many other places. And there's also the issue of we'd like to be able to grow our own food here locally. There's a food security. So from your seat, how how do we reconcile this going forward? How do we how do we keep agriculture and yet still have enough for a healthy environment and for, you know, people's well-being and standard of living and health and the economy. Kind of a, a tall order, but yeah. I think you're, you're the guy that can answer it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can give it a try. Um, <laughs> agriculture is, is a major industry in California. Any way, you, any way you cut it, it's about $50 billion a year in revenues. Um, it's hundreds of thousands of people. Um, it, it's true that some parts... It's certainly, overall in the in the in the state, it's it's a few percent, uh, less than five percent of employment and of the GDP. Um, from a drought management perspective, this has been wonderful. You know, imagine how much worse this last drought would have been if we had the economy that we had in the 1930s and 40s, when about 25 or 30 percent of employment in the state was agriculture. Hmm. Um, so. It, one of the nice things about the urbanization of California's economy is it makes us much less dependent upon having abundant amounts of water. Mm. The, the mm. major sector that still requires a lot of water is agriculture, however. And some parts of the state depend upon that water quite a lot, in particular the rural counties, um, and in particular the San Joaquin Valley. So. It's really mostly those areas that I think are most uh, most affected by by these issues, um, and, and they've of course taken it very seriously. And they're really on on balance pretty smart about it. Um, they're all they're all very smart folks uh, that have thought about it for a long time. Uh, that doesn't mean there's not going to be any conflicts. There's always going to be conflicts about water in California. And agriculture is going to be a big part of it because 80 percent of the human use is, is agriculture. So where this has come is going to come to bear mostly is in terms of trade-offs with the environment. So the environment is, is a sector that we're all trying to make healthy again, even as we try to keep agriculture healthy. Um, and then the other area is uh, groundwater management. So the San Joaquin, most of the state is actually in a remarkably good shape for groundwater. Certainly have our problems, but the San Joaquin Valley. Um, is about 1.8 million acre feet a year in overdraft, which is on the order of 15% uh, of all their water use. So uh, you're, you're looking at you know, losing maybe as much as 15% or so of um, of the irrigated land in that part of the world. And of course, the farmers are pretty smart uh, when they take land out of production if they have to. Uh, they'll take the lowest value, the least profitable land out of out of production. Sure, and I, I mentioned you know that we can we can uniquely grow fruit, nuts, and vegetables. But today we still grow millions of acres of field crops that right. you know possibly could be grown elsewhere, and and um, to relieve to relieve that pressure that you just talked about from the deficit, it'll probably be relieved by things like wheat and corn. Right, and we saw that during the drought. So the, during the drought, uh, agriculture in the state uh, lost about a third of its normal water supply. And right, they made up seventy percent of that loss with pumping additional groundwater, but they still followed about half a million acres during the worst of the drought. Yeah, and and almost essentially none of it came out of almonds <laughs> and, and right. the tree crops and the vine crops, the things that make make agricultural pro agriculture really prosperous as a whole. It came out yeah. of the lower value crops that that California doesn't produce very much of compared to the rest of the world. We tend to import most a lot of our wheat and corn anyway. Hmm. Yeah. But it's very scary to have 
pumped 70% of our savings account, the groundwater, out during that period. But that's that's changing. That'll change that, in the future. That, that's right, and I think that's really probably the wisest thing that came out of the drought was the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, which is going to insist that local areas keep track of that water and, and manage it sustainably so that in the wetter years we're banking enough water that we have uh, enough around for those dry years because the, ca- the character of California's agriculture has been changing. It's become more of the permanent crops, which you, you have a very expensive time following those during a drought. So you really, I, I think there's a real economic incentive for the farmers now to make sure that Sustainable Groundwater Management Act works so that they have that groundwater available in future droughts. Jay, what do you think took California uh, so long? Why did it take California so long to finally address you know, groundwater management, do you think? Um, I think largely because it's so abundant in the state. Uh-huh. Um, you know, basically, we, for the most part, we've been able to not have a lot of groundwater management for 100 years or so. And it's been a problem, but it hasn't been so onerous that, um, that we needed to fix it. Southern California is an exception to that. They've adjudicated a lot of their groundwater basins uh, decades ago. It took them a long time. Um, and I think the, the example of the, the, the pain that people went through to adjudicate those basins um, has, has kept a lot of people in Northern California from wanting to adjudicate basins. But uh, certainly Southern California ran into these problems first and, and has had groundwater management for, for decades. So, Jay, Jay, explain to our listeners what a basin means. Um, so if you have a groundwater basin and everybody's pumping and, and the overall, the total pumping is a lot more than the recharge, so the groundwater levels are going down, um, people start suing each other as their wells go dry. Mm-hmm. And when enough people sue each other, uh, it goes to court. Uh, and it keeps getting worse and worse. And so eventually, over time, what has happened in Southern California is many of the bigger water users come to some agreement on how to divide the groundwater up to limit the groundwater use and then to manage the import of, of additional surface water, typically. And then they'll take that to the judge and, and, and negotiate with the judge to include the rest of the groundwater users in the basin so that uh, the judge will agree to that settlement among the groundwater pumpers, and that's called an adjudicated basin. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a, it's a solution to a tragedy of the commons situation. That's exactly right. I like that. that showing your economic background there, Ingi. Good job. There you go. I, but it, it, I, it, I didn't it, fall it, asleep during that class. <laughs> I was at Davis, so I was, always, I was always awake at Davis because people like Jay were teaching me. <laughs> I mean, not, not Jay, but, uh, you know, Better the people. previous generation. <laughs> I think I'm going to get that announcer who does the boxing things every time we talk about this. Are you ready to rumble? And <laughs> let, 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 that, let that play. Yeah, change, change the subject a little bit. I know a lot of people down here in Southern California uh, don't know much about things called nitrates and, and nitrites. Um, there's hundreds of thousands of customers uh, in the top farming regions that are experienced nitrate contamination in their drinking water. And a lot of it's in Tulare Lake Basin and Salinas Valley um, groundwater. With, you know, the sources, sources of this comes from what I know, various places such as uh, leaching from um, irrigating crop fields and, and, and uh, live uh, stock operations, um, municipal wastewater and, and leaching from turf grass. But how is the harder report on nitrate contamination primarily in agriculture regions affecting Sigma, in your opinion? Um, that's a good question. I'm not sure. Uh, I think it will affect it. Um, what the major finding of, of that report was that um, most of the nitrate that's going into the groundwater basins in the Tulare and, and Salinas areas is agricultural, either from uh, dairies, manure from dairies, or, uh, or from excess fertilizer on crops. Um, this is a, a price we pay for modern agriculture, modern productivity in agriculture. Every 
every part of the world that has modern productive agriculture has nitrate accumulations in their groundwater. So it's not just California. It's, it's everywhere in the world. Um, and the problem is that the nitrate in, in groundwater, um, if, you, if you drink that water above a certain concentration, it, it can be very bad for infants. It's an acute problem of um, uh, blue baby syndrome that, that the nitrate absorbs the oxygen in the, in the blood uh, more than the, uh, than the red blood cells. Um, and so they, they're, they're pretty careful about it. Uh, for the larger communities, they, they either drill deeper wells or they treat. Uh, the smaller communities, it's very expensive for them to, to, um, to treat because they don't have, they're very small. They don't have any economies of scale. And then for the individual households, it's also very expensive to treat just for your own house. Um, so the bigger communities like Fresno, they have maybe 100 wells, and they, they can rotate the wells, and they can do treatment. It's still expensive, but they can figure out a way to afford it. So it's really a problem for the rural, small communities and the individual rural households. Well, I've um, read that California has, uh, in terms of its drought management and how it tries to prepare for future droughts, um, borrowed ideas or perhaps contacted other agencies or academic institutions in Israel and in Australia to try to learn from them uh, how we might better respond and be resilient to future drought situations. Uh, is there much to learn there, do you think, in sharing information and, and sharing experiences? Well, there, there's certainly been a lot of exchanges and a lot of conversations among professional folks and industry folks. Um, all these regions are a little different. Uh, Israel's are actually a pretty small place mm -hmm. um, and is, has a lot less water than we do. Um, so a lot of things that, that they do for their crops we would find too expensive uh, here. Uh, Australia, uh, we've learned some things from Australia too, but they turn out, it turns out that most of their big groundwater basins are saline, so you can't use groundwater there to help get you through drought very well. Yeah. Uh, so we ha actually California does pretty well. There are some things we, we can learn from other places, and we should, but uh, they learn as much from us. <laughs> as we learn from them. Interesting. And and so kind of going back to Sigma, and do you think between the fact that we do have this uh, ample groundwater, we did at one point in time, but we've been overdrafting it, and then trying to uh, take advantage of those rainy seasons, will conjunctive use of an approach by water managers, do you think, grow over time? Do you think that's a an area that's going to be developed more, more groundwater storage? So. I, I think so. Um, part of this will be capturing what surface water you can, um, but and some of it will be um, reducing uh, water use on the surface uh, during the wetter years so that you can bank that water. Uh, we're we're clearly going to have to do a, a combination of both of those. Um, in much of the state, we're not going to have to follow very much, but I think in the San Joaquin Valley, we're going to have to follow a, a fair percentage, you know, maybe 10 20 percent wow. uh, of the agricultural land over the long term. Now, that, that's not to say we're going to lose 10 or 20 percent of the jobs, because we'll take the least productive land out of production first, but, um, but it, it's, you will definitely see it and feel it down there. But there are also some farmers that are showing that we can deliberately recharge the groundwater with the crop still on the ground. Um, oh, yeah. Don Cameron. Um, That's right. That's right. And, and great, great vineyard. So we right. don't have to take it out of production, maybe. Um, the, the only problem with that is we don't often have water to put on the field. Yeah, it has to be in a, in a you know, high flow year. That's, That's right. Sure. That's right. And, yeah. and we don't have as many of those as we'd like. Yeah. We'll hope for more in the future. We'll be that, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, Jay, you've also written about kind of a, a, a different tack again about, you know, the big state and federal water agencies and how we developed the West and Mark Reiser's book, uh, Cadillac Desert. And that was a whole era in and of itself, really, and that things are different now. And um, 
you know, these larger-than-life individuals from the past that kind of ran the show are no more, and that we might need to rethink how we, how our federal and state agencies function and and progress and and become reinvigorated with our new, you know, realities that we're facing today. Problems today are different than they were 50 years ago. How, how in your mind can this happen? I think you've talked about networks of people rather than individuals. you have any examples or ideas about... Yeah, there, there's a, a, a really nice book I, I wrote a review on, uh, on CaliforniaWaterBlog.com a little while ago uh, by John Fleck, who's a, a water writer in New Mexico. Who keeps the, he's from California originally, but he writes a lot about the California and the, and the Colorado River in particular. And he has a, a recent book out called uh, uh, Whiskeys for Drinking and Waters for Fighting the Birds. And, and he, he looks in particular at the Colorado River Basin um, and notes from Mark, Mark Reisner's Cadillac Desert, it looked all very gloomy and doomy from that. But if you look at that basin now, um, they certainly have problems, certainly have big problems. But it's not catastrophic. Farmers have found ways to make money from selling water. Uh, farmers have found that if they follow a, a, a modest amount of land, they can save a lot of water and still keep most of their profits, you know, sort of like California moving to the more profitable crop. Um, that urban areas can implement a lot of water conservation and by conjunctive use and water markets can, can keep really essentially all of their economy going on with a good bit less water demand than people had anticipated back in the 60s and 70s. Um, yeah, it's really a message of collaboration. Uh, he and Pat Mulroy in that, right. in, in that book right. and others talk about collaborating rather than fighting. So. And, and, and the key to making these changes and the operational changes and the cooperation is to get, have a network of individuals among the different agencies that have a common understanding of the problem and a willingness and, and understand the need to work together to change the way you manage it from the old way of looking at this system developed in the 1930s and 1940s to uh, the way we're going to have to do it for the modern economy and the modern ecosystem uh, with a lot more people. Well, that's going to bring us up to the uh, end of our show. And, and God, Jay, we just started wanting to ask you a ton more questions. We're going to have to, if you, with your permission, invite you back. Um, and and thank you so much for 